final piece of bonus audio is a case presented to Drs. Perez, Miller, and Weiner by Dr. Gary Steinecker. I have a 55-year-old white female to present. She's a grade school art teacher, and I first met her in 1996 when she was 42 years old, and she had found a large left breast mass. A mastectomy with immediate tram flap reconstruction was done, and it showed a 6-centimeter infiltrating lobular carcinoma, estrogen and progesterone both positive, HER2 not being tested at that time. She received adjuvant CAF for eight cycles, followed by radiation therapy, and then she got tamoxifen but took it for only four years because of endometrial polyps. She has a strong family history of breast cancer and colon cancer, including her mother who died at the age of 51 of colon cancer, a cousin with breast cancer, and a sister with colon cancer. When I first saw her on my exam, I noticed she had papillomatosis of the neck, and I had heard from a dermatologist that that was a marker for colon cancer. And indeed, we had her get a colonoscopy, and she was found to have several polyps, including a large sigmoid colon polyp with carcinomatous change involving the stalk, and a sigmoid colectomy was done in 1999. Genetic counseling has been recommended over the years, but she's never pursued it. Last year, in February 2008, she developed GI symptoms and was found to have gastric metastases with lobular carcinoma. Can you talk a little bit more about how she presented and how you made the diagnosis at that point? Well, she was very sick the beginning of last year and having GI symptoms at first kind of nondescript and not really severe and very intermittent. But eventually, she came home from teaching and called us because she was just vomiting continually, couldn't even keep her own medications down, and so she was hospitalized and found to have kind of partial bowel obstructing symptoms at the time. Did you get tissue on it? So she had an EGD with a biopsy, and I don't think they really saw much tumor in the stomach, but like other cases, a blind biopsy showed the diagnosis. So, Kathy, this is not too uncommon for lobular cancer. Any thoughts? It's actually quite common for lobular cancer, and this is one of the challenges of lobular cancer. I suspect that imaging that she had subsequently probably didn't find a lot. They may have described some thickened loops of bowels, but nothing that's going to be easy to measure or easy to follow. Did she have any other sites of disease? No, nothing else, nothing in the lungs, liver, bones. And you're right, the CT scanning was a little bit hard to interpret and some vague findings. And that's often the case. In this lady, though, her symptoms are going to be a pretty good guide as to how she's doing. She's had the sort of expected long, disease-free interval and more indolent course. It's probably tough for her to pinpoint exactly when her symptoms began because they've probably been evolving slowly over some months. And I would treat her with hormone therapy. And I assume she's now postmenopausal at 55 and with the therapy she had in her 40s. So the aromatase inhibitor of your choice. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, if you think about it. Now, you were following her for 12 years? I was. How often were you seeing her in the last five years, say? Oh, I don't remember for sure. Maybe four months, maybe six months. I'm so not it's sure. kind of interesting, Eric, in terms of this issue of delayed recurrence, picking it up, and who follows the patients. I'm not really sure right now whether or not some patients, after their adjuvant therapy, at some point go back to their primary care doc, and is that a good idea? Here was a situation where he... Being an oncologist was much more tuned in to what was going on. So it depends on the patient, the doctor, the institution, and the region. That said, there have been randomized trials that have compared different ways of following people, and our Canadian colleagues have done a randomized trial that has compared follow-up with an oncologist versus follow-up with a family doctor, showing 
absolutely no difference in outcome and outcome being survival, but also showing no difference in the proportion of patients who presented with acute presentations of recurrent breast cancer. So I'm not sure that we do better than anyone else. The one thing to point out about that study, though, is that they actually tried to educate the family doctors about breast cancer and about what's reasonable to do in the context of follow-up. You know, we were reviewing yesterday a paper from, if I remember correctly, the International Breast Cancer Study Group looking at invasive lobular cancer. And one of the points is that compared to ductal cancers, these recurrences do tend to be later. We know that that's true of ER-positive cancer in general. It's probably true of ER-positive, well-differentiated cancer in general. And we see that perhaps more with lobular cancer than any other. And like Kathy, I'd be quick to put her on an AI, and I think it's going to work. Edith, also hormone therapy and AI? Um, that's a good consideration. Oh, uh, yes. okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we have you here, Edith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in that original tumor eight years ago that was not tested for her too, and I was wondering if you had any tissue that you could assay for this patient, although, you know, a relapse eight years later is not the classic for her to positive disease. But this patient is very symptomatic, it appears, from your description. So we just want to be sure. Yeah, most of the lobular is HER2 negative, but I don't think we had enough tissue to recheck it at this time, at this biopsy. Whether they have anything from back then, I don't know. Yeah, I appreciate your comment that most of the lobulars are HER2 negative, but not all. And that's yes. why we also test them just in case. And I mean, how much tissue do you need to get a HER2? One slide. And the overwhelming likelihood is that it's negative, but it's right. It's, you know, part of practicing probably the best oncology is just going ahead and trying to make sure that it's negative, crossing that T, if you will. The combination of the... ER positivity, not that ER positive cancers can't be HER2 positive, but the ER positivity, the late recurrence, the lobular histology, all of this makes it incredibly unlikely. But I agree that, you know, why not? So that's a great point. Let's assume that it is HER2 negative. I think an AI could be appropriate therapy because, you know, well tolerated, the patient doesn't have any measurable disease. So Kathy, Dr. Steinecker brought an interesting point up to me when he talked about making a decision here for endocrine therapy, which is if he gave her an AI, would she absorb it, knowing that she's got her GI tract with tumor in it? Well, she has a GI tract with tumor in it that has motility problems. I'm not sure we know that she has absorption problems. I didn't hear that about, was an interesting point. about diarrhea and malabsorptive type of symptoms, but it's not an unreasonable question. She was vomiting a lot. And so if she can't keep the pills in, then she won't. You can give her full vestrin. She could, but full vestrin <laughs> oh. would be equally reasonable It's less choice. effective than tamoxifen. So perhaps about both? <laughs> no, it's less effective than tamoxifen, but it's actually equivalent to an AI in patients who have previously been exposed to tamoxifen. Yeah. So, I mean, most, though, not all of my patients, because I discuss full vestrant with them, and most but not all of my patients would prefer to take a pill. In this lady, she may not prefer to take a pill. You and she may have concerns about, can she keep it down? Will she keep it in long enough to get absorbed? Will there be absorption problems? None of which will be concerned with full vestrant. One comment, which I will acknowledge is an off-label fulvestrin comment, is that if I were going to use it, because in this woman, you know, you really do want to maximize the chance of having a response. She is quite symptomatic. And, you know, it's always been a drug that's underperformed. There's been concern about dosing. 
And, you know, I will acknowledge that I would be inclined to dose not according to the packages, the initial dosing, but either give her 250 now and in two weeks or load her with 500. Others may disagree. So what happened? Well, yeah, I do full strand by loading dose after hearing you and other people talk on Neil's tapes, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't well, know. We, would, we would not recommend loading dose because there are no data. No. Sorry, so. I would. <laughs> so we have two loadings and one non-loading, okay. Well, uh, I started her on an astrazole. Her last normal menstrual period had actually been four years previously, so she was postmenopausal. And she kept vomiting. I wasn't sure she was keeping the pill down. And after a few weeks, I said, look, why don't we do a complete estrogen blockade, like complete androgen blockade in prostate cancer, and we'll give you both. You can stay on the anastrozole, and let's put you on fulvestrant with a loading dose. And we did that, and she got dramatic relief and was able to go back to work. How long after you started the fulvestrant did that happen? Oh, I was seeing her probably once a month after the first loading dose at two weeks and so, two weeks, so maybe within the first two months, I think. So she clearly had symptom changes? She did, yeah. But she got very depressed, and it wasn't clear to me whether this complete estrogen blockade might have done that to her, but she couldn't function. She was staying home. She couldn't go to work all You'd the time. You'd never seen this home. in the 12 years you were no, working No, and I had never noticed that before. So maybe she had a little bit of a personality that would be headed toward something like that with a serious illness. And so eventually, after several months, I took her off the fulvestrant, and she's done well now for one year on just follow-up with an astrazole. But even still, she's a little bit symptomatic and has to go home from work earlier, go in late. The symptoms that are inhibiting her work performance now are GI symptoms, or is this more still depressive? Yeah, more uh, depression, I think. Have you seen, Kathy, depression that you think was related to hormone therapy? I mean, this woman also is dealing now with... You know, 12 years later, she's got metastatic disease. Too. Yeah, and I put her on an antidepressant, and I had her see a psychiatrist, and she's doing a little bit better now. I, mean, I certainly have. There are two patients I've taken care of who became quite quickly profoundly depressed and suicidal, who we stopped all of their anti-estrogen therapy. They thankfully didn't have metastatic disease, so there was a little more room to stop hormone therapy and try to get things under control. They had histories that, in retrospect, should have suggested maybe a greater risk of that. Both of them had had quite severe postpartum depression, had not had issues with depression other than at other points in their life where there had been major hormone swings. Which hormones were they on? One was on tamoxifen, one was on an AI. Mark? My wife has ER-positive breast cancer, and she's a nurse of long standing at Tampa General Hospital. And I can tell you that, I mean, she can know whatever she wants to know, but her words to me basically, there's only certain things I want to know about this. The other thing I can say basically is that my observation of her over these years, and she's doing fine from the standpoint of the breast cancer, but when you basically start taking an aromatase inhibitor, we are carrying estrogen levels down to the sub-basement. And as you know, the old saw basically goes is you don't know what you had until you lost it. And it's not something I can really put into words, but I think you just did very well. These are not benign drugs, and patients may be doing well from what we see, clinic visit to clinic visit. But on a day-to-day basis, going home and hearing somebody with complaints, and you know they have them, it's actually a troublesome sort of thing. Many people are not vocal about all the symptoms they have, or the time just isn't right, or they think they're bothering the doctor or whatever. But those symptoms are there, whether they're doing well with the breast cancer or not. Edith? Yeah, tremendously good point. And this occurs in the setting of getting older. 
which really complicates the situation because for that particular patient, they've never gone from age 30 to 35. So almost everything that happens may be attributed to the drug, which is something that we need to deal with also. Alan? So here you have a patient, she's having a hard time working and functioning. So you've got depression, you have also the side effects of the drugs. But then, as I think Eric mentioned, there's this whole entity of, sort of existential despair. All of a sudden you have a patient who has presumed she's been cured, right? She's been following up with her doctor every four months. She's done everything that she could possibly do. And all of a sudden her cancer comes back. And I would assume that she's got to be thinking that this is now a fatal illness. So all of a sudden she's got to confront the fact that she's going to die of this. Now this is not something that we often directly talk about with our patients. But just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean they're not thinking about it. And it can have a profound impact on a patient's satisfaction with their care and their quality of life. You so don't Gary, directly you talk about this with your patients? Well, Cause uh, I, I do. So how do you talk about it? I think we have to because our patients and their families make important decisions about a whole host of things based on their expectations and their understanding of their disease, that I need my patients to help me make decisions about different treatment options as we go along through the course of their disease. And they can't do those things if we haven't been honest about the fact that this isn't curable. This doesn't mean that I know when she's going to die, but it gives me a fairly good idea of what she is ultimately likely to die from, realizing there are still drunks on the highway and things that we can't predict. And that that has to figure into our goals for any of her therapy. And that's part of my conversation with all of my women with metastatic breast cancer when they're first diagnosed with metastatic disease. So, you know, I know both of you, and I know patients (laughs) you've both taken care of, and I think you both talk to patients about dying. Um, And so I think think maybe you're not quite talking about the same thing, but I think you actually both do it. What happened in your conversations with this woman? Uh, I have not talked to her about lifespan. I don't remember doing that, probably. I mean, I have like more of a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy, I suppose. If she were to ask me, I would tell her, but I'm not going to come in and say, oh, geez, you only got 12 months to live or something. No, that's not what I'm suggesting, and I never give patients numbers, Mm -hmm. um, even my best estimate of numbers, unless they specifically ask for that. But that's different than making sure she understands this isn't fixable or curable in the larger sense. I think it's less an issue of what you tell the patient than an issue of listening to the patient and making it clear to the patient that you're interested in hearing what she's thinking and what she's feeling. I think that's more important than what you actually say to the patient. I think you need to open up the possibility of a conversation about these issues and let the patient talk about what's on her mind. I actually was thinking about the fact that theoretically, now this woman got tamoxifen for four years, then she had the polyps and stopped it. Theoretically, along the way, she could have had an AI started. I don't you know in terms of where this happened, in terms of when the research came out. But Edith, what about the issue of sort of keeping an eye out for people who've had tamoxifen, who haven't had an AI, who are postmenopausal, According to Eric's ASCO tech assessment, which is now being revived again, postmenopausal women with ER positive tumors should have an AI at some point. Are we looking for these people? This is a very good point, and a potential reason for patients after being diagnosed with breast cancer maintaining some connection with the medical oncology community so that patients can take advantage of the new data that may not be as readily available to the general medical physicians. 
because based on the data from MA17, there have been evaluations related to outcome of patients who start an AI several years later, demonstrating the benefit of adding the AI. So we do have those data. So Eric, if she came into you three months before this all started, or you know, at year 11, so she's been off Tamoxifen now for seven years, and she got chemo. She may have been node positive. We could assume that, for example. If she came in for a routine screening, would you say, hey, you know what, I think you ought to start an AI? So, you know, I don't know the exact year that MA17 came out, but I think it's probably about 2003. And I think the results suggesting that there was a delayed benefit came out, you know, in the past year and a half. If she had come in three months before, I would like to think that I would have mentioned those data. But in this woman who was diagnosed in 1996, who's now 12 years out, you know, there weren't any patients who were so far out in that MA17 data set. And I don't think I would have encouraged her to go on an AI. If she were pushing me to, you know, is there anything else I can do to help prevent a recurrence of my breast cancer? I think it would have been a reasonable thing to do. But the last thing in the world I think that you should do is remotely feel like you did something wrong by not thinking about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. Our patterns of care data shows that after about three years, after having stopped tamoxifen, people stopped thinking about an AI. But, you know, of course, you know, it's sort of an anecdotal situation, but you kind of wonder, could this have been prevented? Did you ever think about that, Gary? I have, not in this particular lady, and she might have been even menopausal back when she stopped tamoxifen. Right. Edith? Yeah, very briefly, in the context of MA17, what we did is we allowed up to five years from completion of the tamoxifen to start the letrozole or the AI in the context of the clinical trial. That was that sort of post, after the data came out, thing that was done? Correct, after the unblinding of the data. And even though, I guess it wasn't exactly a randomized thing, they saw benefit. Correct. Amazing, that could happen. Susan? I guess my question is, would the late start of an AI in this patient have prevented recurrence or just delayed it out further? Nobody knows, but I mean, the MA17 data, are, you know, they're pretty striking in Correct. terms of what happens there. Correct. Very robust data, yes. And again, it makes you wonder about the whole model of how we take care of these people. Final comment. Yes, this patient is diseased limited to the stomach, is that? No, a peritoneal cavity. Okay. I think sure. the CT scan showed a little bit of ascites and some thickening right. of areas of bowel. 